Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Keith. You know, I, I don't think in, um, goodness, 30-something years, I don't know that I've been away for three weeks in a row. And uh, it sure is good to be home. I have to say thank you, Chapel family, for sending Janet and I on what truly was a trip of a lifetime. Uh, we had the blessed opportunity of visiting the Holy Land, uh, standing on Mount Carmel, looking out over the Valley of Jezreel, uh, also known as the Valley of Armageddon, and stepping into the synagogue in Capernaum, town that became Jesus' hometown after Nazareth uh, rejected him, the hometown of Peter. And, and uh, uh, we uh, rode a boat on the Sea of Galilee, did some baptisms in the Jordan River, saw the caves of Qumran, rode a camel. We visited Jerusalem and saw the Wailing Wall and climbed up steps that Jesus climbed up and saw so much more than I could show. Uh, I haven't even seen all the pictures yet myself. There are too many of them. Then we had the opportunity to trace some of the Apostle Paul's steps uh, from Ephesus to Crete um, to, um, oh goodness, uh, we went to Corinth and to Athens and and had the time to spend with Bruce and Irene McAtee. I think you saw the greeting last week from them, uh, uh, which was precious time uh, with my dear friend from over 30 years. And uh, so a good time. I just want to say thank you. Uh, Janet and I have been overwhelmed uh, physically, emotionally, intellectually, uh, in every way. We're still trying to process it all. And uh, thank you for that. Thank you also for your prayers. Our plan was to be back with you last Sunday to worship with you here. And uh, last Friday, a week ago Friday, as we were on the plane from Athens to Toronto, uh, Janet had a heart episode uh, by God's grace in His always good care of us, there was a cardiologist on board the plane who attended to her and after a while made the call that we needed to land in London. And so we made an unscheduled stop there. And uh, by God's grace, Janet's fine. She's sitting back there. And uh, uh, But we had an extra couple of days in London, which had I known, I wouldn't have thrown out the invitation I got to the royal wedding. We would have stuck around... <laughs> Who knew I was going to be there? So uh, we could have could have stuck around. Anyway, thank you. Uh, it's great trip, uh, but wow, we're just glad to be back here. And uh, so good to hear you all worshiping the Lord this morning. Uh, touched my heart. Over the past three weeks, Pastor Aaron has given some great messages, looking at some of the challenges that we face as faith and family collide with culture. The question, how do we live as believers, as Christ followers, in a postmodern world is a significant question, a good question, but it's not necessarily a new one. Back many years ago when I was a teenager, actually 50 years ago, <laughs> That great Christian scholar Francis Schaeffer astutely anticipated the decline of Western thought and Western culture 
And he wrote his classic work, How Shall We Then Live? It's a great read even still today. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. It's deep. Be prepared to think. But it's a great question. How do we live when the world as we know it changes and falls apart and what is replaced might be a very difficult, even a hostile place? That's the question, though, that he didn't invent. It's a question that has, I think, come to many, if not most, generations in human history. If we're going to follow God, if we're going to follow Jesus Christ, how do we live now? See, the reality is as much as history and culture changes and changes often quite dramatically over time, what we discover is the human heart remains the same. And so what we learn is that God's Word gives timeless and pertinent answers to that pertinent question and that perennial question. How should we then live? There are answers that transcend time and transcend culture and so For the next few weeks, we're going to answer that question looking back some 3,500 years, going back into the Old Testament to the book of Deuteronomy. I'd encourage you to take your Bibles, if you would, and turn there with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. You may or may not know because Deuteronomy is not necessarily something that a lot of us have spent a lot of time in. By the way, if you're, if you're reading along in the chapel scripture reading plan, you would have read or will be reading today chapter 1 of the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, over the week you'll keep reading through and next weekend you'll be in the chapters we're going to be in for the next few weeks, chapters 5 and chapter 6. But if you don't know the, the, what Deuteronomy is about, it's a series of messages, a series of sermons given by Moses, that great prophet and leader of Israel, given over a period of 40 days, 40 days at the very end of his life. Forty years before this, God had called Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, and take them to the promised land. And indeed that happened. You know the story of the the ten plagues and the crossing the Red Sea and going through the wilderness, stopping at Sinai where God gave the law, gave the, uh, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law there to His people and then took them right to the doorstep of the promised land, the land of Canaan. And you know the story. God was going to send them in and go before them and give them the land. And that generation got there and out of fear they said, I don't think so. And God took them back into the wilderness and there over the next 40 years, God waited till that generation died off. The book of Deuteronomy opens. It's now after that generation is gone, a new generation has grown up, has been raised up. And they are about to enter into the land. Moses, as I said, is about to die. And he is going over the law of God again for a new generation. 
In a very real sense, this book of Deuteronomy is instructions for a for God's redeemed people who are going into a brave new world. And it's how shall we then live? In the first few chapters of Deuteronomy, chapters 1 through 4, Moses reviews for the people the, the failure of their parents and also reminds them of God's faithfulness. And then as we come here to chapter 5, Moses gives some words that we will find very familiar. As he begins to review the law, what we discover here in chapter 5 are the Ten Commandments. Originally given to the parents of this generation back in the book of Exodus chapter 20, now 40 years later, restated, reviewed, remembered for a new generation. So as we today ask that question, how shall we then live? Let's look and let's see what God has to say. Verse 1, chapter 5. By the way, the commandments we'll see are divided into two parts, two halves. The first four of the commandments are are talking about our relationship with God. That's what we're going to look at this week. The next part of the the next six commandments deal with our relationships with one another, and we'll look at those next week. But verse one, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, "Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them." The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did He make this covenant, but with us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. And He said, and I'm going to stop there for a moment. We need to understand the foundation of the law is relationship. God has a relationship with His people. He redeemed them out of Egypt. He brought them to this point. He made a covenant with these people and they made a covenant with Him. These laws, this law applies to them because He is their God and they are His people. It's important to realize because the Scripture tells us even in the Old Testament, nobody was saved by keeping the law. Obedience to the law is not what will save these people. You see, it is because they have been saved God has redeemed them. He has made a covenant with them. They are His people. It's because God has saved them, they should keep the law. As it was with them, it's the same with us. Nobody will ever get saved. Nobody will ever go to heaven because they keep the law. If you're here this morning and you think that somehow there's something that you can do, that you're going to go to church, you're going to help little old ladies across the street, you're going to do every good thing you do, if you can do enough things, maybe you get to heaven. What the Bible says is that doesn't work. 
There's not enough good things that you and I can do to earn our way to heaven. There's no law that we can keep that will save us. It is by grace you have been saved through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish and have everlasting life. We don't keep the law to be saved, but the only natural, logical response is those who have been redeemed, those who have been saved, those who now have a relationship with God, who have been brought into covenant with Him. We don't have the same covenant with God that the people of Israel did. The people of Israel, God made a unique covenant with them as His chosen people, the Jews. But God has made a new covenant with us, a new covenant prophesied, predicted in the book of Jeremiah and in other Old Testament books. Jesus said, at the, as we often mention at the communion table, remember on that night when He instituted communion, He said, this is the blood of the new covenant as He took the cup given for you. He instituted the new covenant at that moment, a covenant of grace through faith. The only logical response to that grace and to His love, though, is to live in obedience to Him. And that's what this simply is. These commandments are how should God's people live living in an unsaved and often a world of opposition. This is how we live. Verse 6, we'll look at the first commandment. Start there. God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is this. You shall have no other gods before me. God is God alone. We are to worship Him alone. In chapter 4, just before this, as Moses is talking with the people, he says this in chapter 4 and verse 39, he says, Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. We are not to worship any other gods because there is no other God. Now the Israelites had been in in Egypt, they had been surrounded by idolatry. You can go back and look at ancient Egypt, just look up their culture, and what you discover is they worshipped all kinds of gods. They worshipped the sun god and the moon god and the god of the river. They worshipped frogs and they worshipped all kinds of things. Matter of fact, ten plagues were attacking their gods, but that's a whole other story. Now they're going into the land of Canaan. And the Canaanites there, likewise, are steeped in all kinds of idolatry, all kinds of worship of all kinds of gods. And this worship of other gods is going to be a constant temptation, and I will also say when you look at their history, a constant stumbling block for the people of Israel. They were continually falling into worship of other gods, and the reason for that, or part of the reason for that, the attraction was, You see, the the worship of all these other gods involved gluttony, drunkenness, drugs, sex, all kinds of things that people were looking at going, hmm, looks like a big party over there. It promised great pleasure. It promised prosperity. 
You and I today, we tend to think as we look at this commandment, we say, you got it. We're not into worshiping other gods. We understand there's one God. We worship Him. And we worship Him alone. Got it. Check commandment number one. Check mark. The reality is we are tempted to worship many of the same gods that they were tempted to worship just without the ancient names, without the ancient images but the gods of materialism, the gods of pleasure, all of those are alive and well today. Our God is whatever our heart craves for. It's whatever we are obsessed with. Our gods are those things to which we look to find meaning, to find purpose, to find life, as it were, in our soul. Our gods can be things like a relationship or an ambition or a possession or an experience. And so things like money or shopping or hobbies or sports or fishing or popularity or social media or alcohol or drugs or sex or work or leisure or music or video games or celebrities or whatever else, those things tend to become gods in our lives. J.I. Packer, great author, put it this way. He said, Indeed, the list of other gods is endless. For anything that anyone allows to run his life becomes his God. And the claimants for this prerogative are legion. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but I know in my own life, there is a continual struggle with other gods. Things that tr- tend to come in and try to take over and crowd out through their demands and their the desires that are in us for these things. Do they not sometimes compete with our allegiance and our devotion that only should belong to God? This commandment is contemporary. It says to us, do not say you love God and then allow your heart to run after other gods. No other gods before me. Verses 8 through 10, we come to the second of the commandments. You shall, have, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, or some of your translations will read idol, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, at first glance, this seems rather redundant and a repeat of command number one. Don't worship other gods. He says we're not to have any idols. And we think, again, got it. Command number two, check. I don't have any little graven images on my shelf of, you know, Buddha and, and uh, here's all the little different gods. We don't have our little god shelf. Not many years ago, we were in uh, we were in Japan, and in a few homes we were in, they have their little god shelf. <laughs> Say we don't do that. We don't have it. We're good. 
check. And it does seem at first glance like the first one that's forbidding false gods. And in fact, this commandment does forbid worshiping idols that represent false gods. So that does parallel the first commandment, but it's more than that. This commandment also forbids worshiping the true God in the wrong way. It forbids attempting to depict God in the true God in an image. Again, back in the chapter before this, chapter 4, Moses is talking to the people about this very thing. And he reminds them about when God had appeared to them at Horeb, at Mount Sinai. And he said, you saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape. He says, when you saw God, you didn't see an image. God didn't reveal Himself as a man or as a calf or as a horse or a donkey, a lizard, whatever else. You didn't see an image. You didn't see a form. And so don't get tempted then to try to, let's get some representation of God that we can look at because we can't see God. And so we try to create something we can see. He says, don't go there. Don't try to attempt to reduce God to an image because it can't be done. God is spirit, the Scripture says. We are to worship Him, Jesus says John in John 4. We are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. The problem with images is that the very best we can do, the very most creative and most elaborate and most grand we could be in making some representation of God would horribly belittle who He is. He's too great. He's too big. He cannot be confined. The One who, who made everything cannot be confined to an image or represented by the, in an image of things that we make doesn't work. The worst thing that happens is we end up with simply a God of our own imagination, a very errant view of God. Paul spoke to the Romans, Romans chapter 1. He said about those who violate this command, he says, professing to become wise, they become fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images to look like man or like birds or animals or creeping things. He says it's absolute folly, absolute foolishness. The point is that God is saying we are to worship Him for who He is, not who we might imagine Him to be. We are to worship God for who He is, not whom the culture tries to say God should be like. If you've noticed, culture loves to do that. They love to define what God should be. And if they see something they don't like, they say, well, I don't think God's like that. Well, God should be like this. And so they want to redefine who God is. It's foolishness. We don't define who God is. We recognize who He has revealed Himself to be. A little thing that might cause your ears to perk up and something that might get your attention in this is that little thought there in verse 9 where he says that God says of Himself that He is a jealous 
God. Does that ever trouble you when you read that? Wait a minute. God is jealous. It did me as a, as a young man when I would read that. I'm thinking, wait a minute. Isn't jealousy wrong? Matter of fact, jealousy shows up in a list of, of the, the apparent, the evident deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5. He says these things are evident. They're certainly an act of a sinful nature. And jealousy is in that list. God says here I'm jealous. Is that okay? The answer is yes. It's okay. See, there's a bad side of jealousy. There's also a good side of jealousy. There's a righteous jealousy, even as anger can be sin, but there's also a righteous anger. There's a righteous side of jealousy. God has the right to be jealous. In a very similar way, we can see it in marriage. A husband or a wife is legitimate in their jealousy for their spouse when the relationship is threatened. They have the, it's a legitimate jealousy because of the covenant, because of the bond of marriage. They have a right to be jealous of that relationship. In the very same way, we have, as we mentioned earlier, a covenant relationship with God. He is our God. We are His people. He has a right to be jealous for the hearts of His people. And not only does God have the right, He also wants our best. I love this quote from Alan Redpath. He said this, he said, God's jealousy is love in action. He refuses to share the human heart with any rival. Not because He is selfish and wants us all for Himself, but because He knows that upon that loyalty to Him depends our very moral life. God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us. See, God knows... Well, let me back it up. Moms, dads, you get this. Kids, you'll have to trust me for the moment. But moms, dads, you get this. You understand far better than your kids do what is really good for them and what is really hurtful for them. Right? We get it. God understands far better than we do the blessings of obedience and devotion to Him and He understands the awful consequences of rebellion and disobedience and, and rejection of Him. God understands not only the consequences to us, but as the verse goes on, the consequences to our children and our children's children and our children's children because, you see, the generations that follow tend to walk in our footsteps. God says He's jealous for us, for our own good, and the good of those that will follow us. He is jealous that we do not go chasing some other God or some other perverted image of Him. He wants us to, again, to love and honor and worship Him for who He is rather than another God or trying to shape Him into something that He is not. Thirdly, verse 11, the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, 
For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Do not take God's name in vain. Because God is supremely holy, we should desire to honor and respect His name. Interestingly, in that prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, we often call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's the, it really should be the disciples' prayer, what he, a model for how we should pray. Do you remember the second line? Our Father who is in heaven, it's the next line, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed, holy, revered, honored, set apart be your name. It should be the prayer of our heart that God's name is given the respect, given the honor, given the glory that His name is due. That should be the desire and the prayer of our heart. God, may you receive all of the glory, all of the honor that you are due. It's something we just don't think about much quite frankly, most of us. We tend to take this command lightly and we don't think much about it. But notice that God says here, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. God says He takes this very seriously. And it's not just about the name. It's about all of who He is. See, the the Jews in trying to in trying to follow this, they went kind of nuts with it so that they were afraid to speak His name. They were afraid to write His name. If they write His name, and what happens if we write the name of God on paper and someday, 10, 20 years later, somebody comes and crumples it up, throws it away, it's going to be wasted, it's going to be in vain, so we don't want to do that, so we won't write His name. Today, even if you read most Jewish literature, if they write even in English, God, they write G hyphen B. So he didn't write his name. Now, God is not being that, that's not the point of this to be that nitpicky about writing or speaking the name of God. The point all has to do with honoring the name of God and not dishonoring his name. And we don't think about it much, and there are ways that many folks, many believers today, dishonor the name of God. Let me suggest three. One, and it's the most obvious, and if we think of about not dishonoring God's name, this is the one we tend to think of, using God's name profanely, using God's name in cursing or in blasphemy. And it's quite common in our culture. If you're like me, it's hard to get through a day without hearing someone using God's name in a vulgar way or in cursing or cussing. It's all around us but it shouldn't be a part of our speech as believers in Christ, as followers, as those who love God. should not take His name in a profane, use His name in a profane way. But there's another way that we use God's name vainly, that we dishonor His name, and that is using His name frivolously, in frivolity. Using God's name in some silly, some meaningless way. And again, it's something that I hear pretty much every day. People, even sadly many believers, use God's name simply like an exclamation point or an emoji in our text. (laughs) 
It's just whenever we want to say I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm excited, I'm mad, I'm surprised, I'm frustrated, I'm angry, we say God! Right? Maybe we don't, but many do. They say that's using God's name simply meaninglessly, frivolously. It ought not be, again, part of our conversation. We should use God's name a lot. Where we are honoring Him, where we are expressing, as we express our joy, we give God credit as the joy giver. When we are thankful, we give God credit as the gift giver. When we are frustrated, we pray to Him and express our concerns and our issues. When we are sad, we take to Him our sorrow. We should be using His name a lot as we communicate, as we share, as we speak, as we pray. But we should not be doing it meaninglessly or trivially, thoughtlessly. Thirdly, in a way that we rarely think about is that we can misuse God's name, we can defame His name through hypocrisy. See, it's simply this. It's simply claiming God's name and then acting in a way that discredits the name that we claim. It's wearing the t-shirt, I love Jesus, and then going and living and acting like a pagan. Again, how often we do that. But again, since God's name, since honoring the name is not just about honoring the spoken name, it's about all of whom God, of who God is. When we, when we associate ourselves with Him and we live in a way that is not worthy of a name, we bring dishonor to His name and his, we bring disgrace upon His character. If we're going to talk the talk, we ought to walk the walk. Fourth commandment, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. The Jews in their traditions were, well, they just went to all kinds of extremes to try to define what constituted work and what didn't constitute work. Also, they could rigorously keep the Sabbath. And you know, if you've read the Gospels, you know that all of those rules at times brought contention between Jesus and the Pharisees as He challenged their legalistic and often quite silly traditions. Uh, Janet and I, when we were in Israel, we were there over a Sabbath, a Shabbat. We discovered that, of course, the stores are closed and, of course, the public transportation shuts down and lots of things that you would expect and then some things you wouldn't think about and wouldn't expect. See, for example, in the, the Jewish thought, pushing a button is work. 
And so if you want to use an elevator, pushing a button is work, and you can't do that on Shabbat. So the creative thing they do is they have Shabbat elevators or elevators that are set up on a Shabbat schedule, which simply means this. All day long, the elevators go up and down, and they stop at every floor. So if you want to use an elevator, you don't have to push a button. You just wait for the door to open, step in, wait for it to get where you want, step off. We say, silliness, of course. <laughs> That's what Jesus talked about is you're, de- you're, you're messing with the letter of the law, doing all this stupid stuff and missing the point. What is the point? God says it right here. Two purposes for this commandment are listed here. One is, He says, it is so that you can have rest at the end of verse 14. Notice, you'll notice there in verse 14, this Command extends, he says, to everyone. It extends to the to every man, every woman, every adult, every child. To If you have slaves, servants, it extends to them. If you have a guest in your home, a foreigner from out of town, out of the country, it extends to them, even to the animals. Everybody gets a day off. By the way, it was a revolutionary concept back then. Nobody did that except God's people. You notice he says why as well. He says, for you shall remember, verse 15, you were slaves in the land of Egypt. 400 years you all didn't have a day off. But I redeemed you out of that. I rescued you out of that. Every, every week, every seventh day, you take a rest. And you don't just take it for you. Again, dignity, worth to every man, every woman, even the slaves. Revolutionary. But it's more than that. It was a rest from labor. But the command, you will notice it says, it was a Sabbath day, verse 14, to the Lord. There's a purpose beyond rest. And it wasn't just we take a day off from work so that we can play. So we have a day to go fishing, a day to play golf, a day to shop, a day to... It it wasn't just that. It was a day to be set aside for the Lord. For the purpose of what? He goes on, he says, it's about remembering. You shall remember, verse 15. The purpose of the day was to take a day where we remember what God has done. How God has rescued us out of Egypt and brought us into freedom, showered His grace and blessing upon us. It was a holy day. Now this command stirs up an awful lot of debate among Christians, right? All of you are aware of it. The question comes up, must we keep the Sabbath? I'll give you the answer real short and I'll give you three brief reasons why. Answer, no. Three reasons why. Must we keep the Sabbath? First first reason is this. As believers today, we are not obligated to the Old Testament law, period. doesn't mean the Old Testament is irrelevant, but what it means is that the Old Testament, and another word for testament you will often see is covenant. The Old Covenant, the Old Contract, The Old Testament, we are not under the contract of the Old Testament. 
It has great value. It is still the Word of God. But we're not under that contract. We're under the new covenant, the New Testament. And we are not obligated to keep the law, the Old Testament law, any of it. I could take as many places, just one very quickly. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 15, which tells us that Christ abolished the law with its commandments and regulations and in so doing He has brought both Jews and Gentiles together through the cross. He has taken Jews who are under the law and Gentiles who are not under the law and in Christ through the cross He has brought us together building as Ephesians 2 goes on to say one body, one building whom Christ is the cornerstone. As Romans 6.14 says, you are not under law then, but you are under grace. Uh, enough on that. I could say more. Secondly, the New Testament goes on and very clearly says this. Not only are we not under the Old Testament law, but just in case you're confused about this one specific thing, which there are some Christians who say we're not under the Old Testament law, but we still have to keep the Sabbath. It's a requirement the New Testament very clearly says we are not under obligation for the Sabbath. A few passages we could go to, but one is Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, which says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or, here it is very specifically, a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. A reality, however, is found in Christ. So he not only says we're not under the obligation of the Sabbath day, but he explains why. And he says this, the Sabbath, like all of the Old Testament law, was a shadow, a picture, something that was pointing us to Jesus Christ. All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament were pointing us to Jesus Christ. They were, they were pictures in the Old Testament showing what was coming. The Sabbath day, in the very same way, he says, was a picture, a shadow of what was coming in Christ. What was the picture? The picture is we need a rest because we are, we are laboring, we are laboring, we're laboring. And, we're in, and for the Jews, it was a reminder that they were set free from bondage. Oh, <laughs> set free from bondage in Egypt. And in Christ, we've been set free from bondage to sin. In Christ, we are living now under grace. And we are free from the demands of the law because all the demands of the law have been settled and paid for through the blood of Christ. We are at rest spiritually. The Sabbath rest was a picture of the spiritual rest that we have in Jesus. That's the point. It says now that the reality is here, the picture is no longer required. That doesn't mean that we cannot celebrate or, or observe a Sabbath. It just we're not required to. And we are to not judge one another whether we do or we don't. I will say though that I think that it, there is great value to observing a Sabbath. We are not tied to a day. If we were, it would be Saturday and we should be celebrating yesterday. But historically, the church has observed the Sabbath. They moved the Sabbath to Sunday in honor of the resurrection of Christ, which brought about the freedom that we enjoy and that's why it's been moved to Sunday. And we set aside a day for rest, for remembering, and for worship. That's the Sabbath. I think there's much to gain from you and me setting aside a weekly, consistent, and I will add the word priority, to 
the time that is devoted to rest, remembrance, and worship. So how are we to live as God's people today? From 3,500 years ago, the Ten Commandments be still work for God's people today. It's not how we earn salvation, but it's what we do simply because we have been redeemed by the, by the grace and the love of God. Don't allow our hearts to run after other gods. Let us worship God for who He is and be careful that we don't try to reshape God into what we think He ought to be or desire Him to be or what culture says He ought to be. We honor God for whom He has revealed Himself to be. No no idols. Don't profane God's name through profanity, nor through frivolity, nor through hypocrisy. And let's take time to rest, to reflect, to remember, and to worship. Next week, we'll look at the next six. Let's pray. Father, good words. We needed to hear them. Every one of us struggles at times because we're living in a world that is, is increasingly in the business of ignoring you forgetting You and even becoming hostile towards You. We as Your people need to stand out. We cannot simply go along with the culture. We need to live as Your redeemed and rescued people. I pray, Lord, that we will worship You alone. No other gods. No idols. They will bring honor to Your name rather than dishonor. It will be careful to take time to rest, be refreshed, to remember all the great blessings and joys that You have given to us, that we will worship You. Lord God, as we do these things, may we not only be refreshed and encouraged and built up as people, but may we be a witness and a testimony to a lost world of how great You are. These things we pray in Jesus' name.